All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. What an excellent day for an There is no shortage of monsters to haunt our dreams. You got red on you. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Alive, it's alive. Groovy. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Oh the Heart, a podcast where we take a look at classic and modern horror films from an expert and a newcomer's perspective. I'm the expert Rob Holmes and the newcomer Steve Allman is still getting set up in LA and will be back with us soon. But once again, we've brought back Mike Haston to take a look at John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Hello again everyone. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I've had a great time uh, other than watching Braid being a part of this podcast, (laughs) but I think we covered that last time, so let's not waste any more time on that movie. Um, Great movie today, though. Yeah, this is, um, if you don't know about John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, this is the second of his Apocalypse trilogy uh, that started with The Thing and ended with In the Mouth of Madness, and this is the second part of that trilogy. Now, I know, I I guess the trilogy is tied together just by the themes of impending doom and and hopelessness. Is that kind of what it is? Because there's no overlapping characters, really, or No, it it just seems like the end of the world. Like, this this is the beginning of the apocalypse. Like, these are... I think maybe they all take place in the same world, in that same universe, so it's shared. Um... Which I could see happening. You know, you have one taking place in the Arctic, one taking place with, you know, the devil trying to be resurrected, and then books becoming the reality. Thing, yeah. yeah. That sounds like a bad week if it's all the same <laughs> the same Ooh. planet, man. You're like, yeah. can you imagine being these people in this movie trying to stop the birth of Satan? And unbeknownst to them, Kurt Russell is running around the Arctic fighting a yeah. mutating alien. <laughs> like... Oh my god! And then Sam Neill with his books and and Lovecraft inspired uh, stuff. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting because it all deals with these creatures essentially that are you know bringing about impending doom. In this one, it's a little more. You don't have that direct creature interaction as much. It's a little more subtle. Right, it's um, more that the uh, the the villain here, of course, Satan, uh, yeah. who's the villain in, in a lot of things, uh, he's he's extending his influence over people rather than doing anything himself, really. Yes, his his influence and his his essence, essentially. So this this is a uh, this is one of the weirdest plots for a movie. It's basically there's a research team that finds this cylinder under a tr- under a church. And it's this green fluid that's just circling around and spinning constantly. And the premise of it is that it is essentially the essence of the anti-god. And it has started to leak. Right, exactly. And uh, it has actually been guarded for, I think they say 2,000 years at one point, Mm -hmm. by what's called the Brotherhood of Sleep. Yeah. Um, which is like a sect of priests that are just literally, they've devoted their lives not just to the cloth, but specifically to making sure that this canister stays closed and things. But they also mention at one point that, because uh, they, they x-ray it, like once they bring in the team that you were talking about, the researchers, yeah. um, that they, they x-ray it and do all sorts of imaging on it. And they say at one point that 
the, it's got a locking mechanism that can only be opened from the inside. So you've got to imagine that when they imprisoned this essence or, or how, because they don't explain how, you know, they wound up with a jar of yeah. Satan in the basement. Um, but a you've got to imagine. Hey, it's a jar of Satan in the basement. Oh, hey, look at right, that. Right. I just, I picture them like moving because you got to imagine yeah. like that jar came from somewhere else and they moved it where it was easier for them to kind of keep an eye on and control and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I just, I, I imagine like almost like a Griswold's family moving scene and they've got all these taped up brown boxes and the one is just jar of Satan. He's like, hey, where do you want this? I don't know, Chicago, you know? <laughs> so it's, um, but but it's, you got to imagine with the effort of, of 2,000 years of these guys watching it and you've got to imagine there was more effort to contain it in the first place. The fact that the lock only opens from the inside means that they weren't even probably sure that, that they could contain it. You know what I mean? Right. They, they had to leave... There was no way to totally rid the world of this essence. You know what I mean? That, and that's the strange thing is that it can only be opened from the inside. Which doesn't, I mean... Uh, doesn't really come into play. It, it, well, it does, kind of, because it, it, it somehow is able to leak... It leaches itself out and then starts to influence people from there and take them over as these mindless zombies. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. It, I was it almost thinking, seemed like yeah. because the cult wasn't, or not the cult, but the church wasn't around, the brotherhood, you know, the guy died who was guarding it. So at that point, it seemed that because there wasn't another person to take over and do whatever it was they were doing to keep it out through prayer or whatever, or that little box, um, it, it ended yeah, up yeah, starting to leach out because... That's when people started to get possessed. That's when you had these zombie-like characters existing. Um, exactly. And it was only at that moment where essentially the apocalypse is upon us. Right. It's at the very least starting and it's moving quickly as evidenced by yeah. like the moon in the sky. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that, that uh, little crescent moon and everything that they keep showing. Um, yeah. And, but the funny thing is they're so rude about it. Like, I know, like, I don't know what kind of pent up frustration John Carpenter had in this thing, but, uh, the first, it, it honestly, it takes over the homeless people before it even takes over the worms and the bugs. You know what I mean? Like it, it's influencing them. They're standing outside the church. They're staring everybody down. And to, to his credit, it's really creepy. Like if I were in that church and I looked out the window and saw that I would not be happy to be there. But they say, Victor Wong says at one point, after he gets the bugs, like, they're all just like, whatever, creepy homeless people. But after, he, after the bugs are in play, uh, Victor Wong says, well, he can extend his influence over very simple creatures. And you're like, are you talking about the homeless people, man? Because that's, that's just so rude. But... Uh, <laughs> And, and he's like, then there's the line with where Dennis Dunn tells the, the really racist witch doctor joke. Oh, my God. Um, and yeah. it's it, there's just so much like where he's like, I'm writing this horror movie, but I got something to say about these people. And you're like, man, like, calm down. Just well, kill uh, you know, character. it's also remember, remember, this is John Carpenter. This is essentially a B movie. This is how he, he makes his films. They have that B movie vibe to them, but they're awesome. And, and the dialogue sometimes is really cheesy. I mean, we look at They Live, we look at Big Trouble in Little China, we look at all of these films. It, they don't have the best dialogue. They have really cool, quippy one-liners, but out of context, some of it's a little weird, you know? My God, I'm having a revelation right now. I mean, you are absolutely right, but I just never thought of it like that because of the goodwill towards those movies. 
yeah. kind of outweighs them, you know? Yeah, um, but then, you know, then take a look, look at, at films live, like yeah. Ghosts of Mars and... Oh, no, thing. I'd rather not. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if he wrote that or not. I don't think he did. But even John Carpenter's Vampires, I was not a fan of that. I know a lot oh of people like it. I don't at all. I think the there first was so 20 minutes are that cool movie. and then it's done. You know, so much of that movie was dedicated to James Woods asking the priest if he had an erection. Yeah, like, so much. He's like, you got a little mahogany, father. I made my dad take a, me and a, a friend to see that movie in theaters. Oh, geez. And he was sitting there like we were, I don't know, 12 or something. And we were like, that was a pretty cool movie. You know what I mean? Even though yeah. we're like, it wasn't great. They had good parts and stuff. Um, my dad was like, you two kids are the dumbest people i've ever met like <laughs> and I, I always thought he had bad taste until i i watched it again later and was like oh I, no he was absolutely right no there are people i know who love vamp they think vampires is one of the best things john carpenter's done and i'm like have you just never watched any other movie he's made yeah stop knowing those people yeah <laughs> but, <laughs> and i mean I, I remember reading an article because uh god i can't remember her name but the lead from twin peaks um the blonde chick, you know, um, that was Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks. Uh, oh, and yeah, yeah. She, w- she was the main girl in Vampires. And I remember reading an article about it before it came out. And she's like, this is going to resurrect my career. Like, this is the thing I'm going to be known for. And then you watch it and she's basically just writhing on the bed in a halter top and then yelling about vampires while with glazed over eyes. And yeah. you're just like, you know, honey, I think I think you missed the mark. But a um, little bit, uh, whatever the, the guy that played the villain uh, as cheesy and over the top as he was, I did like his performance. He's one of those guys with three first names. And I always want to say it's like Thomas Ian Griffith, but that's that's, yeah, that's uh, definitely that's that's rookie of the year. Yeah, I was going to say that's the rookie of the year. Funky butt loving. Yeah. So <laughs> back to Prince of Darkness. Yes. Yeah, which vampires I feel like would fit more into our upcoming Torn to Shreds podcast that we will be doing. Probably, I think it's premiering in the next few months. Uh, yeah, probably, uh, possibly even in the next few weeks. We, we, you know, taking a look at at Prince of Darkness, I remember seeing this movie as a kid, and I didn't like it. Yeah, me too. I w- I had that same thought because I was flipping through channels, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, and the very first thing I saw from this movie uh, was Alice Cooper stabbing a man to death with a bicycle, and I remember being like, I didn't. I was so flabbergasted by the fact yeah. that someone was murdered with a bicycle that I didn't even realize it was Alice Cooper uh, doing it, and I was just. So, I, but it drew me in, man. You know what I mean? I watched the rest of the movie, but I was just like, this is not a good film and uh watching it now you're like there's a lot that really does work um even though there's a lot that doesn't we always think that carpenter has directed he's directed some of the best movies ever but then he's also directed a lot of mediocre forgettable films yeah some stinkers um like his his latest one was 2010's the ward you know and that was not not a good movie you know i feel like i watched that but i don't remember it and from what you're saying, that's no great loss. Yes. And no, it exists. Uh, it's the same as, and then the movie before that was Ghosts of Mars in 2001. Which was terrible. And then before that was Vampires 98, Escape from L.A. in 96, Village of the Damned in 95. He does not have the best track record. That's five for five of eh, films. 
Yeah, that was really... And God, Village of the Damned also has the added bonus of being one of Christopher Reeve's last performances, if not the last performance, before he was paralyzed. I think it was the last one, yeah. But then you look before that, and you're, you have In the Mouth of Madness, Body Bags, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Okay, that one's not great. Uh, they Live, Prince of Darkness, Big Trouble in Little China, Starman, Christine, The Thing, Escape from New York, The Fog... Halloween, Assault on Precinct 13. It's really good. Like, the beginning yeah, no, of his career up until around 1994 was awesome. Yeah, his career was stellar. And then it just, what a huge drop off in quality, you know? It really was. Like, something changed. And it was, it, you know, this is, this is one of those things I talk about, about great directors who there's a certain point where... They, the film quality drops. Toby Hooper had that happen. Wes Craven had that happen, um, which people argue on that all day. But if people want to argue on Wes Craven, go see Cursed. Or oh, that, uh, or no, no, what was the other one that came out after Cursed that was even... Oh, it, was like the, it was like the last, one of the last films he made um, before Scream 4. I was going to say, Scream 4 was the one that stuck out to me, and then he put Creed over the final credits. It was like, this was a terrible affront to your career, sir, and now I'm also listening to Creed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, rough. Anyway, the fact that, you know, th- this is just one of those... This is a great film of, of Carpenter's, though. I think this is one of those underrated ones when people look back at his career. A lot of people don't think of Prince of Darkness, or it's just kind of on the like the B-sides, you know what I mean? Right, well, you even said that, you, because uh, they just put it up on Shutter about a week ago, and you were like, oh, Prince of Darkness is there, and then you texted me the next day, and you were like, you know what, that movie is much better than I remember it being. So and, much uh, better. It was almost once it hit a remaster, and you got to see it looking crisp and clear, and seeing like that green like uh, mutagen ooze almost. It looks like I something I love out the of... effect on that tube, yes. I honestly feel like that scene where they're underground in that bunker could almost be the lair for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And All that right. could be the mutagenous <laughs> that makes them turn into... Tur- I mean, that's it almost has this... It has the same property to it. It, but it I fits like- really well in that 1980s time because I think the cartoon appear, or premiered in 87. This came out in 87. We were definitely going on the lines of, of green goo. Uh-huh. That was a popular thing around that. You had Nickelodeon Slime. You had, you know, Reanimator. It was a very popular time to have things coated in green slime. Right, absolutely. Uh, Nickelodeon, of course, had the chunkier green slime, and Reanimator, the slime itself was. Uh, well, it was more of the, it was it was not right. really a slime, it, but it was the, just the idea of of a green chemical. But the slime right, but aspect I, I liked... was yeah. I liked that reanimator, like the whole uh, concoction in the in the syringe and everything, would glow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's also what I like about this is that um, it's it's like a swirling mass of like it's almost like haunted Jello. You know, yeah. it's like a big yeah. green Jello mold with ghosts spinning around in it, but they they light just the top of it. So, because um, the, the the jar of Satan is very ornate. And it's got, uh, and and as it's leaking and everything, like you said, it's kind of growing these roots at the top, and they mm-hmm. just light behind those roots. And I know they did it in post because of the way it looks and and the way the light isn't bouncing off anything else, but it's a really cool effect. Yeah. And uh, 
I love like though when the when the students get there and because none of them have any idea what they're signing up for. By the and, way, and we're, these so, we're skipping so we, a little. Yeah. yeah, we're skipping a lot. So we were introduced to some students. Um, I thought they were all forty-year-old professors. Uh, they're not forty-year-old professors. They're all thirty-five to forty-year-old students, grad students. Um, who are you know, they? They want to find out what's going down underneath this, but because I guess they're is Victor Wong. Yeah, Victor Wong is their professor. He's their professor, yes. and he meets with Donald Pleasance, who's a priest. Now, the only time we ever see Donald Pleasance really in this movie, he's having conversations with, with Victor himself. Wong. And, well, Victor he, Wong. And, yeah. and himself, he's talking right. to himself half the time. Then he's talking to Victor Wong in a room and they're basically just talking philosophy over and over and over and over and over and and victor wong one of the first things he says he says the outside world doesn't want to hear this bullshit <laughs> and you're like you know okay and that's why they're um, having the conversation inside by themselves like and it kind of yeah. works though because that is kind of the conversation people would have behind closed doors they're not going to have this in public with a bunch of people around Right, but yeah, so like, you know, we, we skipped, we touched a bit uh, on the Brotherhood of Sleep, and the, the first thing you see in the movie is, I guess, the, uh, the, the guy from the Brotherhood of Sleep who has been tasked with guarding this uh, jar of Satan, and he dies. Like, that's literally the first thing. There's a death under a minute into the movie, you know, and um, they contact Donald Pleasance, and they're like, yo, uh, I don't know. They never really explain why he knows about the Brotherhood of Sleep without being part of it, if it's so yeah. secret. You know what I mean? But uh, they're like, yo, somebody needs to, <laughs> to get this under control. And so Donald Pleasance contacts Victor Wong because of his area of expertise. And he's like, we need to go here and investigate this. Don't tell anybody about it, though. And, uh, you know, he basically, rather than... than ask anyone else from the church who maybe like him knows about this in the first place he asked victor wong to put a team together and victor wong is like i've got these 40 year old students <laughs> that that can i'm sure can solve this and so they all show up to the church and they still have no idea what's going on yeah they are um, kept in the dark almost the whole time until stuff really starts going wrong right till they someone's like possessed and even then they don't know yeah. how it happened they're like holy shit like they they realize because there's differential equations from two thousand years ago written in a book, and they're even like that. You know those didn't exist back then, and mm -hmm. so they know something weird is going on. And the funny thing is that like the whole movie, Satan is like cursing at these people and telling them they're all gonna die in math problems. Like they have to put the differential equations into one computer and then translate it into Latin and then translate it into English. And you're like, X equals God is dead and Jesus can't save you. You know what I mean? And it's, it's kind of silly, but it works in the context of this film. And so, like you said, they're, they're putting the pieces together as they're, uh, as they're, cause they don't even get a chance to really look around the church. They look out the window and they see the creepy homeless people. And then everybody's like, okay, this is your task. Like, you work on this, you mm -hmm. work on that. And so they kind of break them down into their own groups. So they're still keeping them in the dark as far as, like, what the end result of their work would be, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, one by one, they, like you said, once it starts leaking, they uh, bugs start showing up on the windows. The homeless people group gets bigger. Um, and then eventually they they start possessing the uh the really old grad students 
and and that's when shit hits the fan. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite parts, though, because they don't know each other, um, is uh, is Susan. I think who is the first person to be possessed, and. there's like four scenes in this movie where people are like, have you seen Susan after that? And everyone's like, who? And they say, radiologist glasses. (laughs) And like, it's, that's just, that's how they know this lady is, uh, cause they just met that morning. And I thought it did a Mm -hmm. great job of keeping even the audience kind of in the dark. Like I had to look her name up. I like them forgot Susan's name, you know? Well, there's, Um, you know, a lot of people as we're following them, it's like, I, I forgot that some were even in the film for a bit because you don't see them until later. Yeah, bicycle like some guy are there did nothing. And then they're, yeah, they're gone for a bit. Then they appear just to get killed, uh, which is fine. And there are some characters in here. By the way, Dirk Blockers in this in this movie. If you don't know him, he plays Hitchcock on Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is weird because he was also in Poltergeist, which we reviewed like uh, not that long ago. That um, is what I'm remembering him from. I kept thinking it was the thing, and I knew it wasn't the thing. But yeah, yeah Poltergeist. Okay. It's Thank just cra- it's interesting to see some of these actors who just do these bit parts in these films, and then when now we see them and they're in shows that have been on you know six, seven seasons, um, that are immensely well, I mean, popular, which is which is great. It's it's awesome that you know thirty years later, these actors are in bit horror films are doing pretty well. Yeah, and the guy that plays Leahy, uh, what what did you say his name was? Um, oh yeah, Peter Jason. Well, he's in so many of Carpenter's films. Like a lot of these people are Carpenter staples. Uh, Dennis Dunn has been in a bunch, even though his acting in this is not good. It's probably it's atrocious. The guy who has the mullet is is worse a little bit. Barely but though. Yeah. This this is like it works in Big Trouble in Little China. Because he's the plucky sidekick. Here he's right. supposed to. Here he's supposed to be like a valued member of a team trying to prevent the, the apocalypse, trying to prevent Satan to come. And all he cares about is a date. Like he's not even. He's not even acting with these other people. Yeah. Like he's not listening to them. He is waiting for them to stop talking, and then he just spits his line out. But and, there are characters like that and stuff where ego is the only thing they care about, and he's also a grad student, so. He might just be socially awkward, and maybe that's the way they wanted to portray that character. Did it work? No. But I could see maybe that being where they were going with it. I mean, if that's where they were going, he is the least likable neurotic character since Ross from Friends. Um, Wow. Or, well, I guess it predates that, but I mean, he's he's right up there with him. Because yeah. you're just like, oh my god, this dude. Like, he's literally, at one point in the movie, um, watching this woman's skin melt and her belly expand and stuff. And they, this is, like, nobody's ever in on the it's, whole... It's messed up. That whole, Kel- the whole scene where Kelly just starts, just, yeah, breaking apart and just... Yeah, he says, I see tissue loss on her face or something. And they say, tell us if you see anything else. And he responds by shouting, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> And you're like, yeah. what are you doing, man? It's well, um, That's what I think is... I don't know if that's supposed to be just people who are uncomfortable being like, he's just like, I gotta get out of here and do that. But it also just feels goofy. And yeah, some of it doesn't fit. This There are moments in this movie that definitely feel very B-movie. That go from, man, this is a really messed up, serious film, to I'm laughing my ass off, but I don't know if that's the for the right yeah. reasons or not. 
Right. It's um, almost slapstick, some of this stuff. Some and, of it and, is, and but at the same time, and some of the kills are a little weak. Like when Dirk Blocker's character gets killed the first time, his neck is broken. Yeah. But then he comes back to life, and you're like, oh, but even that, they didn't go heavy on the effects. Now, granted, I understand that this was Carpenter's return to independent film. Right, they didn't have a huge budget or anything. This was, it was they three, had a big enough budget million. to do some crazy stuff. It was um, three million. It was it was decent. I mean, obviously, this is pretty high concept for what they're trying to do. I think the last movie he ended up doing was uh, like the thing might have been his last studio film, maybe or Starman or one of those. And he had no, no. It was Big Trouble in Little China, and that one like didn't do well. Right. And because it was, it was Big a very Trouble, divisive film in theaters, yeah. Yeah, it was basically, yeah, it said it was his first film he made independently since Escape from New York because there have been so many box office failures that he had had with his movies, but also, like, he hates working with studios because they always interfere every single time. Yeah, he hates studio notes. He wants full control of, of his uh, his art, basically, yeah. And you know what? I feel like he should have it because even if some of his stuff has more of a B-movie feel, it's, it's welcome. I mean, I think it's great. And, you know, you even look back at Halloween. Halloween is, it, it's a great slasher film, but not much... There's not a lot of killing in it. Not much happens. Right, it's what, like five kills or whatever, yeah. And, um, Maybe that, and it's slow. It's a very slow, methodical movie. And I mean, hell, the villain, you know, and he's an icon now, mind you, mm-hmm. but they literally just went to a hardware store and bought a William Shatner mask and spray-painted it. Like, that's what yeah. they did. And then they, and they called it a janitor And they called him The Shape. It. Yeah. The Shape, I know. Like, that's so silly, man, because they never, ever say that in any of the movies. No, like it's but you see him as a silhouette, and that's kind of what it is. It's the shape, but they keep using that as like a moniker for him, right? Even in the credits, no one it's calls him the, the shape. shape. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's never spoken aloud. I get it, and it's cool, but they're like not even so much as a news report where it's like, oh, the shape is moving right. through Haddonfield or anything. And I think it's creepy that you know it, it goes back to how. He'll just kind of stand there and stare at you, much like the homeless mm-hmm. people do in this movie, like uh, like he did to Jamie Lee Curtis outside the school, and and right. uh, even in the new one, I love how you can see him in the background, like just wandering up the street during Halloween and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like amongst the trick or treaters. And I think the shape is a cool moniker for somebody who does that, but it's just it comes out of nowhere because no one ever says it. And then in the credits, it's like, Oh, the shape was played by, well, who the fuck mm-hmm. was Michael Myers, you know? Right. And right. So once again, getting back to, I know where this has really just become a John Carpenter podcast. It, it <laughs> but, kind of has like, this is, but you know, I think it all relates together, especially when we talk about his filmography. Um, right. I think all of it builds up to understanding this movie. Cause if you, mm-hmm. I think if someone else did it, not that you have to be forgiving of some of the stuff like, you know, Dennis Dunn's acting and, and so on and so forth, but that you understand the the impetus and the what he wanted out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, even while we're complaining about these things, you're like, yeah, but I think what Carpenter wanted was this. And that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Our um, complaining is not really complaining as much as it is. To me, this is all fun. Justifying. Anything Carpenter yes. does, his movies are fun. Most of them should be, at least. Not all of Not them are, but I, I, I would say, yeah, I would say, like, 
I'd say 80 to 90% of his movies are, are fun. And, uh-huh. and then, you know, he has the ones that are in the upper echelon of just like, these are the best of the best, but they're all, they all have a fun vibe to them for the most part. Uh, this one to me has the most potential. I think it works really well. It is also one of his, one of the only films that I think is really good, but could also either have a sequel or a remake. Oh, absolutely. And my reason for the remake is I want to see what happens when the anti-god is, like, if he fully escaped his prison. Right. Because, yeah, they leave it very ambiguous at the end. Uh, they don't even tell you, like, like we are left to assume that the possessed people who were still walking around and so on and so forth just drop dead once they once they break the mirror at the end, which is the gateway to, to Dude, hell. The, um, that, the final shot of the movie... There's two moments of this film that get me. That final moment of the film, the final shot right before the credit, that whole sequence, is masterful. It is so good. It builds so much tension. I'm left wondering. In most movies, I'm not. I'm like, oh, okay, he's putting his hand up to the mirror, uh, whatever. The fact that nothing came out, the fact there was no jump scare, the fact that you don't know and he really doesn't know like he played it at that point so believably and that's what i found to i found that ending to be perfect it was like, I it think was it, I the think end is, of the sopranos done better you yeah. know what i mean that that leaving that ambiguity and leaving you wanting more even though you know there isn't more and leaving you to kind of fill in the blanks in your own head I think it was done so well, yes. And then the other but, shot. See, I'm I don't, sure I don't is know. I don't know if they're. But the, and that's where that's what leads up. So it's the first shot that leads to this shot. So there's there's a moment in this movie. We have the anti god, um, basically the son of uh, the son of the anti god has, or Satan, whatever, has possessed um, one of our characters in this. So uh, which girl did it possess? I think it's it Sarah. It was Kelly. No, it got Kelly. 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 Because Kelly became... That's the blonde one. I mean, I know what she Yeah, because she starts yelling out. Because at the end, she's reaching in, saying, Father, and trying to pull him out of of the mirror, which is a really cool shot that could never be done today because it's liquid mercury that people are reaching their hand into, which, as we all know, is like the worst thing you can do. Um... Yeah, it's bad but for you. My mom he, used to tell me uh, when I was a kid, and you know, they would take your temperature with the mercury oh, thermometer yeah. and stuff. She was like, um, her uncle, because she grew up in the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. She said her uncle would bring over mercury, just straight up mercury, for the yeah. kids to play with. Yep. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, we've we've learned a lot <laughs> in the yeah, past few yeah. decades about mercury. Yeah, a lot of mercury poisoning. Ooh, uh, and in this. I love the I love the shot. I love the effect. I like the fact that we see uh, the devil in this underwater type prison. We don't know he's just there. We don't know if he's chained up there or just right. In you just stasis. see the hand. Yeah. Yeah, and you and you can see that he's trapped Yearning under there to get out. Yes. Like, right. Even and I do have a complaint there. Like I feel like the devil's hand. Looks like the hamburger helper glove. And, and, and no, at you know what, what a couple moments. There's like one or two moments where it doesn't look good, and then you see it again, and it does. There was like a moment in there, but it's so blatant. 
But there's another moment where you see it, and it's like, oh no, this right actually does that, look yeah. good. Yeah, right after that, it looks like really cool. And maybe that's what they were going for. Maybe as he reaches towards the this gateway, he's uh, forming himself for the Ooh. physical world or something. You know what I mean? Like, oh, turning I, back because maybe right. he was so trapped in a different kind form of shapeless. That wasn't, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Maybe he is the ghost Jello, and he is now <laughs> gaining form and, and yeah. mass and everything as he reaches towards her. Um, but again, that's, I think that's like the beauty you were talking about a second ago where it's that ambiguity that leaves it to the audience to figure out what's going on. And then I know yeah. the other shot that you love cause it's right oh, after that. Dude, it's so, so and it's our amazing. Main, so our main two characters, there's Brian and Catherine, uh, Lisa Blount. She's our, our, I guess, female lead. Um, mm-hmm. They have this back and forth where you think they've known each other because of they, they hook up pretty quickly. They um, have a really weird hookup. Yes, like he offends the hell out of her. But I feel like they've known each other even talking. though they. Yeah, I feel like they know each other even though they don't know each other. Like this has happened before with them, or something very strange. It feels like they they have a history with each other that I don't fully know, but I like that there's something there. It feels like some of these characters have already existed before the movie started. Well, I swear there's a line where where he first talks to her, you know, after the class, and she's like, I, I want to say they specifically point out that they don't know each other, but they've noticed each other. And, and then I big, think I think time passes between It seems creepy. Yeah. Oh, dude, oh, okay. See, I didn't get that. I think they meet each other, and then some time passes. And because she, they're like, this is the last time. Until the last time, until the last, I think you know for hooking up again. So I think they well, hook they hook up, up like pretty frequently because she's like, at, well, he's like, you want some coffee? And he means the D, not coffee. Yeah. Um, uh, and she's like, well, this is becoming a a, a regular yeah, thing. That's or a mean, habit yeah, that's what I mean. or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be there seems to be definitely we're building on that relationship. So we know that they care about each other, Brian and Catherine, right? So we've established that. Well. Basically, at one point, Catherine walks by and sees the possessed Kelly pulling the devil out of the mirror. So what does she yeah. do? She, instead of freaking out and running away... She tackles goes, her she, through the mirror. She straight yes. up does the hero move. She goes and says, oh no, this isn't happening, and tackles both of them through the mirror. She goes as well... And then at Donald Pleasance, who's been talking to himself in the corner, speaking terrible Latin, like he's supposed to be the guy that's there and at least at least putting the team together to stop this. And he is the closest person to being able to stop it. Right. He's in the room. And And you would think right away someone could just go and try and reach in and grab her because you see the water. You see that she's gone through in that. And you're like, someone, go in. And then, boom. No, he just smashes the mirror. He's like... Mirror shatters because he throws, what, the axe at it or something? Yep, he throws the fire axe at it, yep. And And, uh, that's the best shot of the movie because you see the other side of the mirror, that that watery prison. And you see see Catherine reaching towards the mirror like, hey, I'm expecting, because I just saved all of you. Well, she's reaching like desperately trying to to get out there. Exactly. As she's being dragged away, like her, she's being dragged on her leg. Like they got her. Right. But then it's just like the the lighting in that is so good because they smash the mirror and it's like, 
it's not like a light switch turning off where it's like boom done it's, it's like, like a, a light dying and flickering yes oh it you know what it, it's like a, it's like out. a filament like a filament bursting on a light bulb or something and it yes. sparkles and just just uh sparks out and it's, i think it really conveyed that hopelessness so well because oh it, it, yeah. it died but tried to come back a couple little times but weaker each time you know what i mean and you just and see i her thought that was beautiful stasis oh it's yeah. so horrifying yeah her face is perfect there too yeah. like just just oh my god so desperate and speaking of of good expressions the guy that plays calder or as i call him keith david was busy that month yeah um he he's really weird but and he's terrible as a character on his own but once he becomes possessed and he's like walking up the stairs singing amazing grace while he's smiling and crying profusely at the same time and and so it's that guy was his expressions I think that's what got him the job. Like his his how evocative he is. Yeah, this movie really is. The thing the thing about this film is that we you know we were talking about it's very B movie, but there is some very haunting moments in this film. Really great character. When Calder goes up there and he he pushes, I forget what he jams into his throat like a piece of wood or something, and like slits his yeah, and he slowly. Yeah, with a jagged piece. Like, it's not a clean cut. He just no, stabs not himself at all. in the throat and rips it across. And it's really just twisted. And he's smiling and laughing while he does yeah. it. Yeah, and that's some of the... So these are some of the moments in that. And also, you know, we have the the homeless people out there and that crazy woman with the scissors. When she's going through with that, I like how they... They shot that. I think it was she stood still and they had the background plate move behind her to give it that movement look. Right. Just like for that one she was second. floating or sliding or whatever up the yeah, window. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was really neat because it reminded me of a very Hitchcockian type um, kill shot. And just seeing this guy get stabbed just viciously over and over and over and over. Um, and then, and then appearing, consumed by bugs. Yeah. And then appearing later. And then just falling, you know, the head is gone and it's just bugs everywhere. I mean, the whole thing is just, there's a lot of really disturbing imagery in here. and that, But then you get to that moment, though, where Catherine's death, man. It, and you don't even know if it's a death because she's underwater. She's probably drowning or whatever. She's being yanked, so she may be, you just don't know. Right, she might be trapped that, in limbo forever or whatever. Yeah, but you have exactly. no idea. Like, it could be worse than death. She could be experiencing that moment of hopelessness and desperation for all eternity like the jar of satan did like mm-hmm. for 2000 years cuz that's what honestly i think that's exactly I what think happens it's the, because i think they're in i think it is the they jar they are of in satan. the jar exactly that's exactly what i think happens like I this think that's is, the only that way to have the, the key. gateway the yeah. mirror is the gateway between the jar of satan and the real world and lock, she throws yeah. herself into the the jar basically into that liquid yeah. And she is going to be stuck. That like this dude has been. That would be a great sequel too. Is like her, her mm-hmm. essence or her character having been trapped for years and years and years at, by saving her friends and the world yeah. even, uh, and and that resentment that builds from that. See, I feel and, like you could pick oh. it up from the final scene of the movie. Oh yeah, you absolutely could. But like, I think because th- I think that's if you the didn't, that... I think. I think it's it's okay. She has been not even corrupted, like possessed, like these other people. You know what I mean? I think just her as a human being who who sacrificed themselves for this great deed, and then is stuck in this awful limbo with literally the devil. 
for however long, how does that change the person? You know what I mean? I think that if, if time passes between this and the, the hypothetical sequel, uh, I think that's what they should explore. But yeah, uh, I mean, I would like to see, I would like to see it pick up right from that final shot and have, you know, you have a new actor playing, you can't do it. You know, well, you'd have to do it. Yeah. You know what? (laughs) I was thinking that earlier. I was like, we should do a segment at the end of this podcast and recast the movie for, for, uh, for either a sequel or remake or whatever. Yeah. I'm trading Dennis Dunn for Perry Shen immediately. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know how I recast this nowadays. There are so many different characters in here. There are so many people to that you could go with. But then again, how many are dead? Most are dead, right? So who would you even have as a follow up? You have Brian, Catherine, and a handful of others who made Alice it. Cooper. Yeah, he's alive. Yeah, yeah. He probably looks more homeless nowadays. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I say that as a person going to an Alice in Chains concert tonight. I mean, half of that band is dead. So, um, but, uh, no, I mean, I, I don't, like you said earlier, I don't think anyone would even greenlight this movie nowadays. Uh, it's so, not experimental, but it's it's so out there. Like, there's not, no, see, I, but there's not a that, lot of exposition I, or resolution, which is part right. of the appeal of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't see you would have to do it as an independent film, uh, because I don't see a studio be, they would be like, well, what happens at the end? The, like we need like a giant CGI devil to get hit with the ax. You know what I mean? Or something. Yeah. Like that. It's like, no dude, like that's not the point. The point is the frailty of, of, of really what we consider reality and the world and stuff and how something you're not even aware of. Uh, could end it in a matter of days and who do you get to try and not on not even stop it like the the whole point of this movie is to figure out what the hell is going on with it then they figure out that he's trying to come back or break out of the the jar of jello and then they're trying to stop it but the timeline is so fast that you, you they barely even get a chance to the only one that actually makes any progress towards stopping it is Catherine by tackling uh, the other one through the mirror. No, because everybody keeps talking about it. Basically, it's it's they're all f- doing philosophy about everything, and and talking about the theor- you know the theoretical stuff. And she's the only person who really wants to take action. Right. She's like, okay, that's cool, but like, this is what's going on right now. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like, and and she goes off of that. instinct, and it's it's yeah. such an amazing moment that she goes off of instinct to do what she does. Yeah, because there's not no no hesitation whatsoever. She like not you said, she's one basically she basically walks by the door and sees the lady reaching in uh, through the mirror, pulling the devil out, all melty flesh and everything, and is like, "Okay, I need to tackle this like uh, immediately." That that blew and my mind, it. like just seeing it. that happen, and just in, it, I'm still just hung up on that. that Such a good that that, that, that right is the shot that will stay with you. Yes. Yeah, that definitely, and then the ending itself and those final moments are just perfect. And it, But it really is a weird plot because you think, all right, so it's the devil who is leeching out. No, it's technically his essence, so it's the son of the devil and who's coming out. And then Well, see, I felt like re- the son of the devil was what leaked out because you see the, the, the girl that's reaching through the mirror and stuff, when, when Dennis Dunn is watching her you know, yeah. through the wall... Her, she gets like a pregnant belly and then it kind of goes down. She does not give yeah. birth to a monster or anything, right? I feel like that was the son of the devil 
yeah. uh, taking over her. She basically had an advanced pregnancy, and then he used her body to pull her fa- his father out. But see, you know? so then there's part of me that wonders, because they call it the anti-god, right? Mm-hmm. But if the essence was of Satan, and it was Satan that was coming out, let's say it was Satan that appeared as Kelly, right? Right. Oh, well, what see, no, Sa- I think I think Kelly no, was possessed. The, yeah, okay, I got you. But what if it gets bigger than that? What if Satan was I think he'd be his own Kelly, person. Okay. But what if Satan had a father who was oh. the anti-god? Because then that would make sense to call it the anti-god. Instead of, yeah, okay, God, yeah, that's a good point. Because, of course, because Lucifer, it was, Satan was an angel that God loved and fell yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So, ooh, the father, what if it was the father of both he and God, what, the father of everything? Well, you know there's I mean? God and anti-god, right? So there right. would be two, fa- there's, there's two fathers. If, there, if, there's a, if there's one, there has to be an opposite. Wow. No, that's really good. And so if you if you go further and you go deeper, it could get to that point. It might not be the son of Satan. It might be Satan, and then all of a sudden Satan is the son of the anti-god. Holy hell, though. I like that. Wow. So that's, that's where this, it, this is like, and you know what? Maybe that is what it's meant to be, but when we're watching it, 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 it is very... It's very conf- ambiguous, yeah. Like, it's very ambiguous. But wow, like just the fact and then that you're we can watching think the, of the things like this because right, of what and then we the, watched. It, it the is Apocalypse a Future movie. vision. Who had the Apocalypse Future visions? Was it Catherine? Uh, anyone who went to sleep had that same vision. Uh, right. Because it was, they mention uh, like when you're in proximity, that's why they were called the Brotherhood of Sleep. When you're in proximity to the, the jar of Satan, uh, everyone who goes to sleep has the same dream. And uh, I think they, I read that they filmed that on like VHS, right? And then, and then they played it on a television and they filmed the television to give it that, that effect, um, which worked wonders. And you know, this, this is, this is unlike the last movie we did. This is a fantastic film. And uh, while we are dissecting it and talking about a lot of stuff and giving a lot of stuff away, uh, I don't think we should talk too much more about it because I feel like our audience should absolutely go watch it. And we don't want to give away everything. So, I mean, I just, I, I can't give it a perfect score because of some of the, the acting performances. But it, this is as close to a perfect score as I can give uh, through what we've watched on this podcast so far. I love Yeah, I mean, I would movie. say like, I would say eight, eight and a half out of ten. Yeah, I, w- I was going to go with nine. But yeah, no, I, yeah, it's yeah, definitely up you there. Know, I think eight and a half because there's there's a few moments that drop big it missteps, slightly. Yeah. Um, but the I feel like the practical effects on everything, like literally everything, kind of elevated a half a point. It's a but, movie that it's a movie that if you start thinking about it, it sticks with you. In certain moments, really can stick with you. Oh, absolutely! And that one shot with the flickering uh, with Catherine Dude, that, on the other side that will stay with you forever. That is so, one of the most iconic moments, I think, in, I think in, in horror. horror yes. In horror. I and a lot of people Period. may not agree, but you know what? If they're wrong. If you don't if you don't <laughs> want to watch the movie, just look up Prince of Darkness, Catherine. Just know, look up the last uh, ten minutes, because I've got it paused on the TV right now and it just happened. Like what's paused is the axe breaking the mirror. And it's in an hour and 36 minutes in. Uh, it's only an hour and 41 minutes for the whole movie and crew and credits. So just look up the last 10 minutes. 
you know, um, and watch that and you're going to be blown away. Yeah. But, uh, and it, it really just, man, that just made it, it made the movie. Yeah. I loved it. So thank you for having me watch this. It was a great, uh, breath of fresh air after braid. So <laughs> yeah, man, absolutely. I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And yeah, it was uh, definitely an unnecessary, uh, film. I think, uh, that probably wraps us up for, for Prince of Darkness. Yeah, that's uh, it's definitely going to do it for us this week. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mike, for coming on again. Absolutely, thank you for having me, and thank you everyone who's listening for joining us. And uh, and as Rob mentioned earlier, look forward to our new podcast where we will not be talking about good movies, but we will be ripping apart the bad ones. Called Torn to Shreds, coming soon. Yeah, Torn to Shreds. It's going to be we we tear apart movies, but at the same time we put in constructive criticism on how we would make it better. Right. Uh, so, so you know, at least something good can come out of it. <laughs> you never know. Maybe one day we will make a better movie. So, uh, yeah, more than likely, yes. <laughs> I think I have a. I think I have a home video of me and GI Joe pajamas opening books on Christmas and asking who the hell thought I would like this that would would stack up better than some of the movies we're going to be doing. But uh, it's going to be fun uh, for us to do, and hopefully, even more fun for y'all to listen to. So, thank you again. Uh, yeah, and that'll do it for us this week at Oh The Horror. You can find us at Oh The Horror Cast on most social media platforms. And you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. It is Oh The Horror, uh, with, hosted by Rob Holmes and Steve Ullman. Uh, this week we did have Mike Haston. And yeah, be sure to check out our podcast, uh, Torn to Shreds, coming soon to anywhere you get your podcasts. And fine wow. music. Exactly. But not Sam uh, Goody. But not Sam Goody, because they're not around anymore. Right. Uh, but for other horror, I've been Rob Holmes. And I've been Mike Haston, and I still am. Yeah. All right, we'll talk to you next time. I think. All right, I think. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. Now, it is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. And there's no more room in hell. The dead will walk here.